Hello and welcome. My name is Tom. This is The Enthusiasm Project, Season 9, Episode 10, which is The End. Finally, it's the finale. And that's crazy. So, goodbye, everybody. That was the whole episode. It wasn't the whole episode, but pretty crazy that we are already at the end of Season 9. So, I wanted to touch on something that I think is sort of connected. It's been a a season centered around the idea of learning, and I wanted to make an episode all about everything I don't know, which admittedly, it's a bit of a clickbait title because if it were actually about everything I don't know, I don't think this episode would ever end. So trying to limit that down a little bit, but this is something that I think is going to be pretty interesting. Before we dive into that, though, I don't want to get too deep into that because I do have several messages that I want to get to that we kind of forgot to get to last week. So I would love to do that this week. And uh, of course, a little bit of gear talk because I am for this final episode using the Rode NT1 fifth generation in XLR mode uh, into the Rodecaster Pro 2. And I just have it running through the original NT1 preset. I was going to switch out the mic for this week, but I've really been liking this microphone. I worked on a bunch of different projects this week where I just ended up, I forget why I chose it, but I ended up using it. And while I was editing both the audio stuff I recorded and some videos that I recorded, I was just really impressed with the sound of this mic. I always loved the other NT1. I guess it was the fourth generation that I had before this. And according to Rode, they're not supposed to sound any different. Like, really, the only difference is the USB functionality in this one with 32-bit float, but that shouldn't affect the XLR quality. And I haven't admittedly done enough like side-by-side testing, but I feel like this sounds a little different and better. It could be the Rodecaster because I'm running it through those preamps, which are really good, and maybe that's why it's sounding different. I need to do more testing. Anyway, that's what I'm using Rode NT1 5th generation, which I just find myself liking more and more the more that I use it. So it'd be fun to do a video on that at some point. Let's dive into some messages. We've got a couple messages here um, that I forgot to play last time. The first one is a gear-related message, and this comes all the way from TJ. Not from not from TJ Tijuana, but TJ the person. So take it away, TJ. Hey, Tom. I'm a big fan of your YouTube channel. Been watching for, for a while now. And I wanted to get your suggestion regarding a video rig setup. Uh, So what would you take on an overseas trip that involved a lot of walking between locations as well as bus rides and things like that, uh, where you wanted to film, you know, scenery and B-roll type of stuff, as well as uh, perhaps on the on location interviews or extended uh, monologues, you know, people standing in front of the scenery talking about different things. Uh, because I'm going to be going on a trip next year and I wanted to do some filming while I'm there and just really want to figure out what I need to purchase uh, tripod, a gimbal, good bag, what type of camera, just really anything um, that you, any suggestions that you could offer would be great. Uh, maybe you could even make a video about it. All right. Thanks so much, TJ. I appreciate that. It is actually not a terrible idea for a video topic about like small travel gear, but um, kind of going through some of the some of the things that ran through my head here. One, I'll disclaim this by saying there's a million answers to this question. And even if, if you don't want to go with what I say, it doesn't mean you're going to 
go wrong, right? Like you can't go wrong in a lot of ways with a lot of gear because everything is so good. There was a quick follow-up message that TJ added saying he was looking at the Blackmagic 4K, Pocket Cinema Camera 4K. And um, I haven't used that one, but I've used the 6K Pro, which I really, really loved. And so my first thought, I guess if we're going cameras, so going on this trip, it's overseas. What that says to me then is we're very limited, right? Like we're not going to be adding more gear. We kind of need to take everything that you can possibly take and keep it with you all at once. But it needs to be a relatively compact setup because of travel and airfare and just, you know, stuff that you need to carry every day. So the 4K, the Blackmagic 4K is a very small, compact camera and it's a great camera. So if that's if that's kind of the camera that's speaking to you, I'm not trying to dissuade you from it. But I would, it wouldn't be the camera that I would choose right away. And as much as I loved the 6K Pro that I used a while ago, um, it's a, it, it's not a tough camera to use. But, you know, there's no stabilization, there's no autofocus, and setting up batteries and storage, you know, it, it's, you kind of got to rig it out a little bit to make it practical. And I don't know if that's going to be practical to travel with. Um, again, if there's something about the Blackmagic cameras that's just calling to you and it's what you want, I, by all means, go for it. But I think for something travel, there's probably some more practical places to go. And of course, I'm going to lean towards the worlds of Canon, Nikon, Sony, um, all that stuff. So um trying to think here. I have very limited experience with Nikon other than the Z9, which is like their, you know, their flagship one. So it kind of comes down to Canon and Sony. And if you got preferences, lenses are a big thing of preferences. Right now, Sony's kind of kicking butt in the lens department because Canon is sort of limiting their lens selection. So I'm going to lean towards the direction of a Sony camera because pretty much no matter what you get with them, you're going to get good image quality. You're going to get really good autofocus and you're going to get decent battery life as well. Um, along with a, a bunch of different IO ports and lens options. And yeah, it just seems like it's the most practical choice to me. So uh, I don't know what the budget is. The Blackmagic Pocket 4K, I think, is around a $1,200 camera. So the, you know, the least expensive Sony camera that, that I recommend everyone is the ZV-E10. But it sounds like what you're doing, interviews and such that's probably, you probably need something a little bigger. So my mind immediately jumps to the FX30, which is a crop sensor. So it'd be the same. Actually, no, the 4K is a micro four thirds camera. So it'd have a bigger sensor than the 4K. Uh, it has a great, great body. I've traveled with my FX30 a lot and it's the same body as the FX3 and it's awesome. Unless you're going to be in bright sunlight and you need a viewfinder, then you might need something that has a viewfinder. So maybe that's like A7S4 or sorry, a 7 or A7S III, um, but those also jump up quite a bit in price. So again, I don't know what the budget is there. Um, there is the ZV-E1, right, which we've talked about, but it doesn't have a viewfinder. And to me, the price just, if you really want full frame and you absolutely cannot jump to the a 7 I guess it's a way to go, but I would personally probably choose the FX30 over the ZV-E1 just for, you know, you got the built-in fan, you got the you just have a kind of a better video centric body. So that's what I would look at is FX 30. If you need a viewfinder, then maybe uh, like a seven four or even jump up to a seven S three minus firmware updates. 
Uh, that's where I would I would lean towards. I probably wouldn't go for the A7C just because it is a little bit older at this point, even though it's a great camera. Maybe you could find one for a great deal. Um, and yeah, that's that's that would be my recommendation. FX30 if you're okay with crop sensor, uh, A7 IV or A7S III if you want full frame. And that's the land of Sony, the Canon equivalents. They have so many, I don't even know what they are right now, but Canon would have price-matched equivalent cameras if you want to jump into that ecosystem. But, so there you go. So you have a camera that, that's not going to overheat, has good battery life. Make sure you have plenty of memory cards and batteries that you're taking with. You don't rely on one or two. Take a bunch of them. Get a memory card case that you can put your cards in and keep track of ones that, you know, I don't know if you're going to offload your footage regularly throughout your trip or if you're going to um, just kind of keep everything on memory cards until you're home. So whatever it is, make sure you have plenty of memory cards and that you're able to keep them organized and safe. I love the little plastic memory card cases. You know, they're like rough plastic, like Pelican cases. They're weatherproof, waterproof, and you can hold all kinds of memory cards in there. Um, you obviously need to worry about audio. So that's gonna be a big one, especially if you're doing interviews and stuff. My recommendation would be to take two audio units. One would be like a video mic. If you're using a Sony camera, you could get one of the the ones that just goes right into the hot shoe. So it'd be, what is it? The B1M is the one I have. And then the B10M or yeah, there's the B1 and the B10. They're basically the same in terms of image quality. The reach is just a little different. Um, Both of those are great microphones and they're super easy to use because they just put it on the top of the camera and you're done. If you don't want to do that or you get not a Sony camera, uh, something like the Rode VideoMic NTG is a great choice because you do need to, keep it charged and everything, but then you get great audio quality, you have gain control right on the microphone. And you know, that's one of my favorite microphones as well. And then I would recommend one of the the wireless type setups that are around, like, um, you know, like the Rode Wireless Go To or the DJI Wireless Mic Kit, whatever, you know, fits your budget that you like, something with a couple of transmitters and a receiver is probably the way to go. I think at least those two, the Rode and the DJI both have two transmitters and one receiver. And that way, uh, you know, it'll be easy for you to capture good audio, especially of people. And if you're not in, you know, the quietest environments, that's going to be a way to go too. Uh, travel tripods. I would, I well, actually, when I travel, I kind of take two. I have a Benro Travel Angel travel tripod that I've had forever. It's just a small travel tripod. Like, you know, it's not the cheapest one in the world. Like you don't want, you want one with a nice, nice ball head on it. Video centric heads are usually nicer, but they're a little bigger. So I always just go with ball mounts on travel tripods. And I like the Benro ones. They work great. And I've had my current, my main one for like five years and it's still going super strong. And then, you know, they're kind of pricey. They can be one to $200. There is the Peak Design travel tripod if you want the absolute smallest and lightest one, but it is very, very expensive. I think it's more expensive than it's worth. Ulanzi did come out recently with sort of a competing version that actually seems to be better in several ways and less expensive, but I don't have any firsthand experience, so I can't say that. Could be worth checking out. And then I would recommend a smaller, like, I guess a vlogging tripod is the way to go, even if you're not necessarily doing vlogging. Um, I love the PGY Tech Mantis Pod. That is my absolute favorite one. I think they they actually have the Mantis Pod 2.0, so I have the original Pro and I think the new one is just better, but it's the best little handheld tripod. It's super compact, super easy to use. It's really nice to be able to, you know, set your camera up on a surface without without it tipping over. You have tons of versatility and you don't need to take 
even a small travel tripod, if you're just traveling out and about, can sometimes feel really big. So usually I travel with both. I take a travel tripod and then I take a like the Mantis pod. And then backpacks. <laughs> um, I'm laughing because of all of the episodes and videos I've made about camera bags. I don't have I don't have a clear clear answer here. Clearly, um, I am really loving my Tenba bag. My uh, it's the Tenba Fulton 14L, which is probably too small. They have like a 21 liter that's a little bigger. I love it because it's super durable and super rugged, but it's still relatively compact. And then the Manfrotto uh, Pro Light bag that I mentioned in a bunch of episodes and did several videos on too is mine's awesome and I love it. The only thing I'm not crazy about is I can't put a camera totally in the top of it and it's just a little too big for me, but it could be perfect for this kind of trip. Um, Typically when I do a trip like this, I, well, it sort of depends. I'm trying to think of how much luggage you want to take. Oftentimes I will take a bigger camera bag that has everything in it and then a smaller bag that is like the one that you take every day. Um, But if I had to choose between my two, I'd probably lean towards the Tenba just for its compactness and Tenba bags. The Manfrotto bag is super durable, so I can't say anything, but Tenba bags, I have had them in every kind of weather condition from dust and heat to snow and rain, and they've never let me down. So that's that's kind of where I would go there. Um, in addition to, like I said, batteries, maybe you want to check out some ND filters. Lenses, we didn't talk about lenses. We'll say ND filters for your lenses. What freaking lenses do you have? Um, if you're just, you know, what I would actually recommend is getting this stuff as early as possible, even if your trip isn't till next year. Figuring out, figuring out your gear, getting used to it, especially lenses, finding out what you like is going to take a little bit of time. And so instead of just buying a whole bunch of stuff and thinking that it's right for you, you know, have being able to figure out what works for you is important. I love traveling with like a prime lens and a zoom lens because I don't want to switch out lenses too much, but there just really isn't like one lens that does everything. And so I love prime lenses. I usually take my 24 and actually, I take my 85 a lot, too, because it's really cool. Um, those are just the ones I like. A lot of people love to have a 50 millimeter. You can get a very inexpensive 50 millimeter lens for any camera system out there. Probably a great thing to have with you. And then a lens that has some zoom capabilities just for the versatility. Historically, I've always gone with a 24 to 105 because that's very versatile. The downside is most of them are F4, so they're not the best in low light, not the best indoors. I've absolutely been loving the Tamron 20 to 42.8. That is my like, I love that lens. Um, it's obviously it's a Tamron lens, so it's for Sony cameras. It's so good. 40 millimeters isn't, you know, the most reach you can get, but on a camera like the a7 IV, where you can then crop into super 35 mode, you get a little more reach with it. F2.8 is great in low light. The image quality is awesome. The lens itself is light. It's in, not inexpensive, but for lenses, it's inexpensive. And I just love that one. So it'd be cool if there if you had like, a, you know, a 15 to 200 millimeter F 2.0 lens or something, but I don't think that exists or is even possible. So those are kind of my recommendations, um, you know, and feel free, you know, send me an email or something if, if you got other questions. But I'm glad you asked that because I think that's one of those questions that lots of people probably have. And so I'm glad I got to dive into that. And hopefully anybody listening could take away a few things or a few recommendations from that. Um, And thanks again, TJ, for the message. Up next, the last message of the season is from Gil, from good old Gil. 
Hey, Tom, this is Gil. I hope all is well. I really enjoyed last week's episode about set design. I thought that was really, really cool because I'm someone who is trying to perfect, you know, their set. Not that there's anything wrong with mine, but like with anything else in life, it can always be better. Um, But I really wanted to leave a message because you talked about working with a nonprofit. Uh, So so do I. Well, so did I a couple of weeks ago. Um, I shot a video for a nonprofit that uh, finds homes for people who have suffered domestic abuse. And the video that I was filming was about a woman who has been living in a airport for a couple of months with her special need, special needs kids. Uh, she has two kids. They need, they have uh, um, special needs and whatnot. And I was filming the video in their, their home. It's a really nice, cool apartment, but it had literally nothing in there. They had just a couch and a table, no picture frames, no fake plants. So I went ahead and got fake plants, got picture frames, pots and whatnot, just to make it look um, like a livable livable space because before it looked like a prison cell. And when I did that, the uh, the people at the organization were just kind of like, whoa, this actually changes everything. This looks amazing. And like, yeah, it's set design. So I thought that was pretty cool that you mentioned that and just kind of wanted to share that story. All right. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, Gil. I I appreciate, I was going to say something about like, I'm all set to appreciate your set design stuff. But what I really like is that you're able to show, you know, people don't think about that kind of stuff when, you know, you want to film something, they think like, just grab a camera and point it. But as soon as you can show someone like, this is the difference that lighting makes. This is the difference that good audio makes what set design does, it really then, you know, puts puts it into perspective, just the the effect that those things have. And so sounds like a great organization you're working with, but also being able to find simple ways to just elevate things up is absolutely awesome. Something I love, which I don't have, if I had more space, if I did have like a warehouse type studio, I always love it when video production people have like a whole section that's just weird props and, you know, it's, usually it's like Rubbermaid containers or something of just like different materials and gizmos and get like things to just like dress up sets or to make stuff kind of look nice. And there's so many weird little like, I don't want to call them hacks, but kind of like things that you can use for purposes other than what they were originally intended. And they create really cool effects on video. And being able to do that for clients is awesome. Gil's super talented on Twitter. He's always posting different podcast setups because he, he'll work with clients who hire him to do like podcasting. And if it's a video podcast, he, you know, makes it look good. And it's always cool to see no matter what location you're in, how you, you know, you have your set that always looks good, but wherever you're at, you always find ways to make it look awesome and interesting. And yeah, that whole thing on set design was so much fun to talk about. And it's one of those things, once you start thinking about it and you start noticing it, it's kind of impossible not to notice, but it also takes some practice to get good at. Just like the stuff that we're going to be talking about today, he said as he smoothly transitions into the topic of the episode, everything I don't know, which um, is a lot of stuff. So I wanted to start off by by kind of listing some audio and video related things that I don't know, even though I've been doing this forever. I'm 37 years old. I've been into video and audio production kind of as long as you could like four years old is my first really conscious memory of like cameras are cool I want to film with a camera and so that was a what 33 years ago at this point 
Uh, I've done it, you know, personally, I've done it professionally. I taught it for a decade. I like this stuff a lot. I feel like I'm fairly knowledgeable and fairly skilled, even though I don't want to present myself as an expert or, you know, a professional. I feel like I have a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience and I can do a lot of advanced things, but there's also a lot of very fundamental things that I just don't know. So here's a list that I came up with. There's a lot of them. This is literally what I could come up with in like two minutes. So you can just, you can imagine the depths of my ocean of ignorance based on this. So here are some things related to audio video things that I don't know. Uh, Log footage. Basically, I never use it. I understand the premise of log footage, uh, but I, different, like what is the difference between not only like, I know C log is Canon and S log is Sony and the C is for Canon and the S is for Sony. I don't understand the nuances between them. And then God forbid, you know, there's, S-Log 3, S-Log 2, C-Log 2. How does Canon have multiple? I don't know. And they're different somehow. I thought it was just supposed to be a flat picture profile. I don't know. Log footage, essentially a pretty big uh, mystery to me. I know very little about lavalier microphone placement. I've been trying to get better at it because it's something that I could, it would be very practical for me to be better at. But I, every time I record a lavalier microphone, I feel like it sucks and I have to try to save the audio as much as possible. So that's just a huge mystery. Lavalier mic placement, no idea. I know nothing about time codes. I understand the idea of syncing multiple cameras and audio to kind of the same time, but how how you get them to talk to each other, how you deal with that in editing, no idea. And it feels way too complicated for me. I know almost nothing about anything related to networking. I've had to like set up servers and things in the past and it's it's like a weeks long project. And I know networking is not audio video related, but it can be, especially if you use something like an ATEM Mini a lot where you could just stream with that plugged into a network and you don't even need anything else. Um, and that means I'm using, you know, one tenth of the functionality of my ATEM Mini. And that's just the way that it is. I use it to switch scenes and kind of nothing else. So networking stuff, definitely not your guy to go to. Uh, Basically anything to do with Windows. I haven't used Windows in many, many years, and that's not a dig on Windows. That's letting you know that if you set me in front of a Windows computer and want me to like go dive into something, it's going to take me a minute to even figure out how to get into that the menu or search for a file or whatever it might be. Um, Cameras, Different exposure and autofocus modes. I always, I always mess up my exposure. Maybe I should be shooting in log footage because of that. I always mess up my exposure. I know there's all kinds of different meters. And I, I know the autofocus modes in my cameras that I like to use. But then there's different ones and the way that they transition. And and uh, I don't know. It's very confusing. Audio signal processing. I understand the basics. But when you want to dive into the nuances, like I can turn a compressor on and off. But if I want to go in and dial it in to be perfectly, yeah, compressors, limiters, noise gates, always a struggle. Every time I need to use one, it starts with me watching a YouTube video on how to use one because I never remember how to do that. And the last thing on my list of stuff I don't know that I thought of in two minutes, luffs versus decibels. If you're working with audio, I just, when I'm doing like a podcast or an audio only thing, I just aim for negative 16. I don't know if that's decibels. I don't know if that's luffs. I don't know if they're the same thing or different. I know I've Googled this many times and I don't remember the difference between it and the world hasn't ended. So I'm just kind of sort of, it is what it is, I guess. 
Uh, and there's a lot more, but again, this was just the list of things I came up with that I don't know, even as someone who has done this for many, many years and taught it and regularly makes videos and things about it. This is some relatively fundamental stuff that I just don't know and am not skilled at. And a lot of it I have looked, like I have looked at these things, like what is the difference? But if it doesn't become a a piece of my like regular workflow, it just doesn't stick. But again, this is something that I'm good at, something that I'm confident in saying I'm good at uh, and above average at, I would even say, not to gloat, but that's the thing, like 33 years of my life, you know, has been spent on this nerdy stuff. So hopefully I'm not terrible at it. Definitely not the best at it, but um, it's something I'm good at. And there's just so much that I don't know. And so the reason I'm sharing that is not to just like take away all credibility I've ever tried to build up, but it's because there's something I want to normalize, which is not just my audio. Once I understand normalization better, I want to normalize the idea of admitting what you don't know. I think that that's something, I think it's something people have always struggled with and something I noticed even as a teacher. And then I noticed it with students teaching for 10 years was interesting because you kind of wouldn't think there would be that big of a difference between students in that span of time, but there really was like students, you know, when I started teaching, my students were born in like 1992 ish. By the time I left teaching, they were born in 2005. So it, it's, it's a weird, you know, like there's a different generational thing. And one thing that I think is an effect of, I don't, I guess it's Gen Z or whatever comes after that. A lot of people in that generation having grown up with online, easy access, digital media and things being filmed all the time is a really big fear of failure and publicly failing and admitting you don't know something because it's not just, I don't know how to do this or whatever, but it's like everybody's watching you admit you don't know how to do it or everybody's going to see, which I think people often feel like, but historically you've been able to say like, it feels like everyone's looking at me, but nobody is. Whereas for a lot of people now, it's like, it feels like everyone's looking at me. Oh, and they are because that somebody, if not you is posting this online. And that's, that's a little bit, that's a little bit crazy. So I've noticed there's a a real hesitancy to admit any lack of knowledge. And sometimes that can be a mis that can be mistaken for a presence of knowledge. You know, it's like, it's like if you're in a class with students and you say, does anyone have any questions or is, is there anything you don't understand? If people don't raise their hand, it's not because everybody understands it. There's probably a lot of people that don't understand it, but they don't want to raise their hand and say so. And so when I was teaching, one of my big things was to never be afraid to admit that I don't know something, even though you're in my class and I'm supposed to be teaching you this thing. But especially, I mean, I would do this with English when I was an English teacher. Like, do you remember what a gerund is? No. <laughs> like, who would? Nobody would. Unless you're an English teacher that needs to teach a lesson on it that day. So there were so many times where it's like, well, here's the thing that's in the curriculum that I need to teach. Now I need to do a refresher so I can teach this, you know, to students. And then of course, you know, many teachers are then like, well, how do you guys not understand this stuff? What, what do you, you don't know gerunds? No, they're 14. Nobody knows this stuff because it's not super practical in daily life, but it's a cool thing to talk about and gain an understanding of. And so especially, especially I'm, but the thought I was having was teaching in a place where many of my students were learning English as a second language. They would have questions about like, why 
does it work this way? Why do you have to say something this way? Or is this spelled that way? I'm like, I don't, it's just how it's always been since I learned to talk. I don't know. And then we would have to kind of dig in and figure it out. When I taught digital media, you know, I got to make my own curriculum, which was great. But there's so many different ways that students are using everything that every single period of every day, somebody would ask a question that I couldn't answer. And I remember pretty early on, you know, feeling pretty insecure about that. I was in a new position. I wanted to be good at it. I wanted to show that I was good at it. And I just kind of had to swallow my pride. And a student would ask something. I'd be like, I'd go over to their computer to help them. They'd have a question. I don't know how to do something in Final Cut or whatever. And I'd be like, I don't know. And then I would just open up Google (laughs) and type in, you know, how to do blank in Final Cut Pro. And a lot of students would kind of laugh when I did that. because they're like, oh, you're just going to Google. But it was like, yeah, I'm, I don't know how to do it, but I can show you how to find the answer. I'll find the answer. We will figure it out. And then whenever we finally did figure the thing out, I would always say like, this was really cool. I learned how to do something too. And then, you know, inevitably a couple of days later, some other student would ask the same question and I wouldn't have to Google it that time. I go like, hey, I actually do know how to do this. That was a huge way of how I learned to use Final Cut Pro, which is doing that for like a year. Um, and then it's like, yeah, now I know how to do all this stuff in Final Cut Pro because I just Googled it a bunch in front of people. That's not necessarily how you want to learn Final Cut Pro, uh, but that's how I did it. But it's a, it's it's a comfortable thing to get into to to admit when you don't know something and know how to do something. And so taking that even further, it feels like even in the adult world, people are scared to admit they don't know something. And a, a strange thing that's happened to me as like my channel has grown and I've been invited to be guests on other people's channels or streams or whatever it might be is sometimes I'll be asked questions about things that aren't related to my topic. You know, like, I guess it's one thing. I don't know if, if someone asked me something like one of these questions, what's the difference between lefts and decibels? I would just say, I don't know, but there's, there's a weird impulse where sometimes someone will say, oh, what do you think about this political thing or this economic thing? And it's like, I don't, like, I'm really not someone that people would go to to have an opinion about this stuff, but there's this weird pressure if you somehow have built up any sort of audience that then it's like, you should have opinions about everything and be able to articulate your thoughts on everything. And I've had to learn to literally just say, I don't know enough about that to have an opinion on it. And maybe it makes me sound lazy or ignorant or something. I'm not celebrating ignorance here, but you don't need to have an opinion on everything. You don't need to know everything about everything. It, It will drive you crazy if you try to do that. But at the same time, I do think it is important to figure out what you don't know so that if it if it is important to you to correct that, you can do that. And something I've noticed, at least in my you know audio video niche on YouTube, is there is a fear of people admitting they don't know things. And the reason I discovered this is because when I started asking questions like lavalier microphones last fall, I was like, okay, I know nothing about lavalier microphones. I made a whole video about it even where I was like, I, I'm trying my best literally, please tell me what to do differently. I don't know how to do this. I had so many messages and comments from people going, oh my gosh, I never even use lavalier microphones because I don't know how to position them. This is so difficult. And it was really nice because it was like, oh, look, all these other people who seem to be really good at what they do are also struggling with this one thing that I'm struggling with. And I've noticed that every time I just admit, I don't know, I don't understand this. I don't know that. A lot of people who seem to be very good at what they do also struggle with that thing. And I think that that's cool because something that happens is 
it feels like, especially as an adult, and especially if you're, you know, say you're an adult and you have a, a YouTube channel about cameras, and then you get to a point where you maybe you don't know how to grade log footage, but you kind of feel like, well, at your level, you would expect people expect you to know how to do that. And then you feel really scared anytime the topic comes up because you don't know how to do it. But you also feel like if you ask how to do it, it's like, what? You're asking this super basic question at your level? Like you, there seems to be a lot of insecurity about admitting this kind of stuff. And I, I really want to encourage people to be open with things that they don't know. Again, not celebrating ignorance, but it's okay to ask a question. It's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to direct someone to someone else who does know better. Like those are all really great things. And just because you don't know something doesn't mean you do need to know it. Like, like I said, I've looked up the answers to a lot of these questions many, many times, but it's just not something that ends up sticking in my workflow. So it doesn't stick in my brain. Like I don't, it's not, doesn't end up being something that, that I need to learn. But I wanted to start with examples of stuff I don't know in an area at which I'm an expert, because the next part of this discussion goes into learning new things. And this is where I'm going to share some experiences of mine with you in hopes that you can relate to it in some way. So I've always been somebody who, like, I guess, collects hobby. My hobby is having hobbies. (laughs) And that's always been true. For some reason, over the past year, I've really dove into a couple of specific hobbies, which is not that unusual for me. But what is different is I've really wanted to take them seriously to the point of, you know, like getting formal instruction for them. And those three things are learning to play the bass, taking flight lessons, and learning to ice skate and play hockey. Very different things. And you can't do them all at once. Um, And they're all expensive too. It's not like knitting. I'm sure knitting is expensive. There's probably like I don't know, expensive yarn or something, but everything, hockey is the cheapest one, which is still not cheap because if you play hockey or grew up with that, you probably are laughing because it's known as like the most expensive sport. But let me tell you, after learning aviation, when someone's like, this $130 for a hockey bag is expensive, I'm like, it's basically free at this point. (laughs) Like, have you heard of camera bags? Have you heard of aviation headsets? Like, it's okay. Anyway, but it's still expensive. That's not what we're talking about, though. I got distracted. One thing I don't know is how to stay on track right now. But those three things are are all things base or sorry, uh, aviation and hockey were things that I'm like learning from scratch. The bass is something that was a little less because I started playing guitar back in 2001 and played bass a little bit, but never really took it seriously until a year ago. And then I've spent really the last year like To the point where I would say if I had to choose what my main instrument is, like if I were to join a band playing an instrument, I would choose the bass. And I think I'm more competent and skilled on the bass than any of the other instruments, even ones I've played for many, many, many years longer. And that's because a couple months after getting my bass, I decided to enroll in an online bass course. Talked about it before. It's called Beginner to Badass, and it's awesome. And it's totally, it's like $300, lifetime access, super worth it. It took me five months to get through the course. It's, you know, it's self-paced, but five months was a good, rigorous schedule that still let the material sink in. And I was someone who never thought I could understand music theory or scales or any of the technical stuff. Like I could figure out, you know, how to play a song or understand some of the basics, but I could never go that deep into it. And it's like, not only did I learn 
how to play the bass, but I learned a lot more about music, which is then translated to other instruments. So doing that has made me a better guitar player, even a better drummer. And that has been incredibly exciting. And then for aviation and ice skating and, and hockey and stuff, I have gotten li- live instructors. That sounds weird. In-person training, I guess. Flight lessons, you can't teach yourself online. Like you got to you have to have a trained flight instructor with you to, you know, evaluate every step along the way. Kind of same thing goes with ice skating, even though the stakes are significantly lower. Um, you you need someone there with you. And so taking classes, taking lessons, and, and those are both things that I had essentially no knowledge of before. Ice skating was something that the last time I went was like over 10 years ago. And I swore at the time that it would be the last time I went because I had a miserable experience, hated every second of it, never wanted to do it again. Heather tried to get me to go for like five years, never wanted to go. And then finally, I, I agreed to go with Heather at the beginning of this year and it just clicked and I just wanted to get better and better. And Heather's been practicing jump roping for two years, a year and a half-ish now, a while. And she has gotten so good at it. And I remember her first day of getting her jump rope where, you know, she could kind of just jump rope and that's it. It wasn't like she was doing tricks and routines and choreography and stuff. And watching her just practice and get better and better at something where she had zero experience before was really motivating when it's like, I feel like Bambi on ice. And it's like, I just need to keep doing this and I will get better at it. And then you do. And that's pretty cool. And that's, that's pretty crazy. And even though it's fun to have that progress, both of these things are incredibly humbling because you just realize how much you don't know, how bad you are at something, how, like, even when you think you're doing something right, like today I went and practiced ice skating this morning and I actually had the guts to kind of set up my phone in the corner for a second, film myself so I could see what my form looked like. In my mind, my knees are bent super low. I'm going super fast. I basically look like I'm in the NHL. And then you watch it back and it's like, this is a very slow moving redwood tree that is just super upright. And just like, it's not, it's not quite what it felt like. A little bit humbling there, you know? Same thing goes with, with flying. Like I, I study for my lessons and my training and I pay attention to everything and I run through simulators and practice and all this stuff. And then, you know, as soon as it comes time to to make a radio call or run through a checklist in a specific order, it all just goes out the window. And I'm like, what's an airplane? I, what are we, like, how does this work? I don't know. And again, it's humbling. It's fun to learn these things. Over the past year, it's been really, really fun. Um, but it has put me in the situation of feeling like a beginner constantly. And that's something that I've been trying to embrace. But it's also it's kind of worn me down a little bit. I think I, I think I'm finding a good way to handle it. But what I mean is I had gone on a, a flight lesson a while ago. This was actually like over a month ago. And it was an awful flight. <laughs> like, honestly, it, the weather was really bad. It was like a stage check. So it was like a, a progress check evaluation on all these different maneuvers. And again, it's crazy turbulent, crazy windy. I'm like, I'm also kind of flying with an instructor that I'm semi new to and haven't really done that much with. And it was just like, I, I honestly thought I wasn't even going to be allowed to touch the controls after a while I was doing so badly. I think in reality, I probably did pretty average. Like, I, I think, you know, like it's fine. I passed the thing. It was a nightmare. I just felt so 
I was like, I worked so hard at this and I'm so bad at it. And that's, you know, then I'm going ice skating and falling down. I can't do anything that I see other people doing. And, you know, it was just this thing of feeling like an incompetent beginner. And I remember telling Heather that I it was really getting to me and I wanted to feel I wanted to feel good at something. Like I wanted to feel competent. And I think the phrase that I used was I needed a win. Like I want a win. I just felt defeated by always being a beginner. And I have, I, even making YouTube videos, like that's something that I, I'm good at. And I know, you know, I can do this to a level that a beginner can't. And there's a lot of skill and a lot of knowledge but it is also, it's not exactly something that like people are watching you do, or you know, I guess they watch the videos, but when you're good at making videos and you're good at making podcasts, it kind of makes it seem like it's really easy. You know, when someone is really good at something, they make it look super easy. And, and at the same time, if somebody were to go like, oh, let me hang out with you while you record a video, I'm going to mess up everything and I'm not going to do a good job at it because I'm going to freak out that somebody's there's they're watching. And that really kind of brought to light well, flying, ice skating, I just this past week finished like the intro beginner adult skating class. And so there's, you know, there's a evaluation at the end where you're running through all of the the different moves you're supposed to be able to do, which like I'll get to the rink early. I'll practice. I'll do everything just fine. And then as soon as it's like, OK, here's, you know, the other students in the class. Everybody's cool. Here's the instructor who's super nice and helpful. Go do this thing. I cannot do the thing. It's like I've never even worn ice skates before. It will not happen. And I'm realizing that I have insane performance anxiety. And maybe it's like a social anxiety spotlights. And I don't know what it is. I'm calling it performance anxiety. Because as soon as as soon as I'm aware that somebody else is watching, I can't do a thing anymore, which I know is weird. I was a teacher for 10 years. For some reason, I was able to get over it for that kind of thing. It's Heather and I talked about this on, on a recent episode of The Couple's Table. It's a very layered onion that I need to go through and I don't understand the depths of yet, but it's something I'm realizing is, is an issue. And it makes it really hard because it makes it tough for me to, to be comfortable like making mistakes in front of people. I don't know if I'm scared of being, you know, reprimanded or criticized or something, but it's, you know, a lot of times ice skating has been a good example because it's the easiest thing for me to do. Like it, it's, it's inexpensive. You go to the rink, you know, it's a couple dollars and then you, you go to a public skate or something. I'm lucky that our rink has adult public skate several times a week. So it's people 18 and up and they have usually sessions that are early in the morning. So sometimes there will be like five people there or six people there and you, the rink's essentially empty, but sometimes you got to go to the other public skates where it's like kids and families and teenagers who are just like dangerous cannonballs barreling down the the rink. And, you know, it's essentially just a, a crowd of people just sort of slowly moving in a circle is the experience. And especially for that, but for any of the times I've had to spend a lot of time like on my way there, not thinking about what I want to practice, not thinking about anything like that, thinking about getting into the right mindset and the right headspace to do this thing. Because as soon as other people are on, I start to get nervous. I don't want to be in the way of what someone else is doing. I, you know, I don't want to feel like, you know, like, it's almost like seeing me fail at something. I, I don't want to feel judged. I don't want to mess something up. I, I don't want to, you know, say there's like an amazing figure skater who's going around and doing something. And I'm over here trying to 
learn how to stop or something. And then I get in their way and I mess them up. I don't want me with my baby skills to get in the way of someone who's trying to do something important. In reality, we were all just at a public skate that we paid the same ticket price for, right? Like, it's just, it is what it is. But it really, like, most of my struggles don't even come with the ice skating. It's the mental part of it. And it's really, it has messed me up in a bunch of different different endeavors. But that is a really big one. I'm, you know, it's it's really gotten to me. So much so that I realized, I think it was performance anxiety, and there's a really great hockey player subreddit. It's called Hockey Players. And I searched for anxiety in that or performance anxiety or something. There's a whole bunch of threads, which made me feel better that there were so many people asking, like, I'm nervous about this. I'm anxious about this. You know, whatever, needing reassurance. And somebody in that thread said something that, like, literally it was a light bulb moment for me. It's one of the best things I've ever heard. I wish I'd heard it sooner. And what they said was that they used to feel really nervous about, you know, trying and falling and all that kind of stuff. It's not even so much what people are thinking. It's just the, it's being exposed as incompetent, I guess. It, it's, it's, it's a very strange thing. But anyway, what they said was that they had adopted the mantra of, I'm not afraid to be seen trying. And that changed everything. And as soon as I read that, I'm not afraid to be seen trying, it shifted everything in my brain as well. Because, yeah, sure, it's embarrassing to fall, I guess, but not re- like I'm falling because I'm trying something new. Like I'm not I'm not being irresponsible. I'm not just, you know, drunk on the ice and falling and ruining everybody's time. Like I'm trying to learn how to do a skill. Humans don't naturally have knives on their feet and walk across water. I'm trying to figure out how to do that. And it's weird because every part of it is super unnatural. And so if I mess up or I'm not as good at something that's okay. Like I'm over here trying to do something. And if someone looks over and sees me trying to do something, that's okay. But that applies to everything. Like if I'm scared of how to position a lavalier microphone, so instead of never using them in a video because I don't know how to do it, why don't try it? And then I'll do my best. I'll try it. And then I'll learn a little bit. Maybe someone else will watch that video and say, hey, I noticed you have your lavalier microphone here. You should try clipping it here and it might help. Like, I'm trying and that's okay. And being seen trying is fine. And if anything, it might be helpful because then other people see somebody else trying and then maybe they're comfortable trying something. You know, it's like going back to teaching that if you've ever been in a class of any kind where there's a guest speaker or something happens and somebody says any questions and then it's just dead silence and eventually someone very timidly asks one question and then after that, now 10 people have a question because you just needed the one person to do it. Sometimes, you know, I think that might be it. Like if you if you understand that I'm bad at this thing, I'm a beginner at this thing, but I'm trying really hard to get better at it. And I don't want to, I'm not going to feel embarrassed that somebody has seen me try something. That's good for you because for me, it's put me in a way better headspace where now like when I go ice skating and I think that, I don't feel that, they don't have that spotlight syndrome as much. I don't, it doesn't matter if I fall down, if I do whatever, I don't feel like I'm in anybody's way. I don't feel like I'm taking up space that I'm not supposed to be taking up from people who are doing really important things. I just feel like I'm trying to get better at ice skating, you know? And I think, I think that's a really important, helpful thing. And when that happens, it can make other people feel better. This happened the other day, actually. 
I was at the rink and this guy was there who I don't I don't know him, but he seemed like he must have been figure skating for many, many, many years because not only did he have like super pro gear, but as soon as he got on the ice, it was just like if you told me he was like center of a show that people paid tickets to see, I would believe it for sure. The guy had some kind of awards and recognition for ice skating at home. Like he was very, 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 very good. And he fell a whole bunch like he'd do something and he'd fall down and then he would just sort of lay there for a second and then get up and try something else, do something amazing, try something, fall a little bit. And it was like, wow, okay, that's kind of cool to see. And he, but he was absolutely amazing. I know I said he fell a bunch, but you could also see the stuff that was just pure muscle memory. And it was like, I felt like I should have paid admission to watch it because it was so such a good ice skating. And then after about 30 minutes, this coach showed up and they did like a 30 minute class session where he was working with a trainer and a coach to get better and better at something. And I was like, okay, this person is the best skater here by far. This person could teach all of us, you know, how to skate better, everybody else who's here. But they're also now spending time working with someone else to build their skills and try to get better and better, even though they seem so good at what they're doing. And that was a really cool thing to see. That made me feel better about like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff I don't know, but I want to learn and I need help learning and I want to feel comfortable being bad at something so that I can put in the time to get good at something. And that was an incredibly powerful mindset shift. And honestly, the whole point of me even doing a thing about everything I don't know and admitting what I don't know is kind of that. Like, I want to be upfront about stuff I don't know. I want you to feel comfortable admitting stuff you don't know. I want you to feel comfortable learning stuff that you don't know. And I want me and you and everybody to feel comfortable being seen trying to learn new stuff. Because also you you tend not to give yourself credit for the progress that you've made. So the other day when I was doing the ice skating thing where it's like, you know, I, I was messing up all the stuff we're supposed to do. I was like, ah, I really feel like, are they even going to let me in the next level class? Like, did I get that point? But then I was thinking, okay, at the start of this class, no, nobody here could even stop. Like the very first thing we had to do was go from one side of the rink to the other without hitting the boards. Everybody slammed into the boards. And that wasn't an issue after like week three, you know, like everybody could stop, not a problem. Everybody can fall down and get back up. You know, you can do, you might not be able to do everything at a super high level. There might be a bunch of stuff you can't do. Talk to me later about backwards skating. But it's like, wow, there's a lot of stuff right now that I absolutely could not do two months ago and never thought that I would be able to do, which is just a lot of it comes down to kind of these self-limiting beliefs. Like my prior experience ice skating led me to think that that's not a thing I could ever do. Even telling my mom when I was like, I think I want to like practice ice skating. She was like, you shouldn't do that. (laughs) Remember how clumsy we are. We're not good at that kind of thing. Like, I guess our family is known for being clumsy, which, you know, history checks out on that. But I was like, no, I think I, like, I don't think anyone's born capable to do this thing. Everyone has to learn and get bad at this. Same thing with the bass. I never thought I could learn scales or any kind of music theory. Nope, turns out I could. Same with flying. I remember getting my drone license back in 2017. And when I was studying for it, every once in a while, you go through questions that are more geared towards not drone aviation, but, you know, general aviation or commercial aviation. I remember thinking like, oh, these are the things that like real pilots need to need to know. It's not really something I'll ever be able to understand. It's like, no, you just, 
you just have to learn it. And even going through, like I said, I had that terrible flight the other day, or I guess it was a while ago, but that was um, humiliating in a lot of ways and frustrating in a lot of ways. But at the same time, it was like, yeah, I, you know, I can pre-flight an airplane. I can plan out a trip. I can do all of the preparation. I can make the radio calls. I can taxi. I can take off. I can go to the space place that we're going to go to. I understand the basics of what the maneuvers should be, even if they're not always executed perfectly. I like that's a lot that I couldn't do a while ago. A year ago, a year ago this week is when Heather and I went to New York and that was a flight where I was gripping the armrest the whole five hours because I was terrified of flying versus now like I'm being thrown around in a little like Cessna airplane in terrible weather just mad because my turnaround to point is in a perfect circle. Like that is a lot of progress. Even though I'm looking at it as like, well, your turnaround to point is not, it's kind of more like oblong. It's not really a perfect circle, but it's like, this is a huge amount of progress. And it's so easy not to give yourself credit for the progress that you've made going to the ice rink and being like, yeah, I can't skate backwards. I can't skate fast. I, I know I'm not bending my knees enough, all this stuff. It's like, yeah, sure. All true. But also at the beginning of this year, you couldn't let go of the wall. Huge progress, huge progress being made. Like even just getting comfortable to go ice skating by myself is huge progress. So ultimately it's been a, it's been an experience of learning to embrace being a beginner and, you know, and embracing everything that you don't know. And I, I definitely don't have all the answers to this. Like, absolutely not. And like I said, there's kind of an onion of layers to work through. But it's been cool to recognize that so that it's something to focus on. And I, I do know that when it comes to learning something new, not only, you know, you can only be comfortable admitting what you don't know if you feel that you are in an, a comfortable environment and the context is appropriate if you need somebody else there that you do have an instructor that you're comf- comfortable with, with a learning style that works for you. You know, I I had to talk to, you know, flight instructors and and come to the conclusion that like, maybe, maybe I do work better with different people because just of the teaching style and the learning style. I'm someone who thrives on positive feedback. I'll beat myself up enough. Like I don't need somebody else to come in and then be harsh, harshly critical of me. I will do that by myself so much so that I will never do the opposite. So I I kind of need someone to then come in and say something positive because that's what encourages me. I'll never do that to myself. And that's what, you know, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that is a thing, but it's all, it's all part of learning. And so kind of as we're wrapping up here, you know, there's so much, a lot of the stuff I wanted to go over this season of the podcast were kind of more fundamental things because that really did come from the, the the realization that there's a lot of stuff that you can assume other people know, but when you really ask, wait, did everyone kind of get the basics of this? There are a lot of people who are, who are like, actually, I maybe would like to learn a little bit more about the basics. And it's easy to assume knowledge or competency, but maybe sometimes it's okay to not know something, to go back to the basics, to admit gaps in your knowledge, skills, and experience. And that's that's not a bad thing. I think it's a very good, mature thing to be able to do. And I hope you feel the same way. So we are at the end of season nine, the last single digit season. I don't know why that's important, but it is. So um, 
I'm going to be taking a few weeks off. If you're listening to this when this first comes out, that means there won't be a podcast for a couple weeks. If you're listening to this at some point in the future, wow, amazing. But then you can probably just jump into the next episode, maybe. Um, Not exactly sure how long the break will be. Probably the beginning, like the first Monday of June is when the show will be back. Because I really have some cool stuff in mind for season 10 because it seems like a big deal. 10 even though it's all kind of arbitrary because I just made up the seasons kind of randomly, but season 10, that's the, that's the biggest one yet, the biggest number yet. And so I want to take some time to kind of rest up and take a break, get some new ideas, and also see if I can work on a few cool new things that I think will be really, really fun. In the meantime, though, if you have a thought about this, if you have thoughts about anything we've talked about or even not talked about, feel free to send them my way. You can always send me an email, tom at enthusiasmproject.com. You can just type out your email. I'm happy to read it on air. You can also attach a an audio file or a video file that way. And if you want the easiest way to submit something, just go to hi-my-name-is-tom.com and scroll down a little bit right to where it says leave a message for the podcast and you can just use the little button right there to record whatever device you're using. If it's your computer, your phone, whatever, you can just submit a message. That's how Gil and TJ submitted their messages for the show today. And I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to have you be a part of a future episode next season. And, you know, whatever, any messages that come in during this break, I'll just save them and we'll dive into them on episode one of season 10. And in the meantime, there's a couple of things, you know, if you want to take this break to learn how to start a podcast of your own. I just this week released a 2.0 update to the Podcaster Playbook, which is my DIY step-by-step course. You can check that out at podcasterplaybook.com. I am so excited for that. I feel really great about it. And um, yeah, I, I that was my first course and it's been really fun to kind of go through and refresh everything and add a whole bunch, added like 10 new lessons to it. And there's also the Podcaster Idea Book. So if you already know how to make a show, but you need help coming up with a concept for it, you can go to podcasterideabook.com. And if you don't want to spend a year Googling questions to learn Final Cut Pro and you want to learn how to edit, or at least how I edit in Final Cut Pro, you can go to learnfinalcutpro.com. And it's kind of ironic that I ended up ending the episode about everything I don't know by like, if you want to learn from me, I don't know anything. If you want to learn from me, go to these websites. But I know some things about a few things is my personal slogan now. So hope you have a safe, happy, healthy, fun rest of your week. And I look forward to seeing you next time.